Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Lift Big, Eat Big's new workout program, The Phalanx Method. Coach, powerlifter, strongman, and historian Brandon Morrison took a unique approach in his creation to this three-block, six-month-long effort. Using ancient sources and modern techniques, he was able to recreate the training of one of history's most destructive military forces, the phalanx. And that's not just the sales line either. This is only three days a week in the gym, and it's brutal. I've uh, competed in powerlifting, CrossFit, and spent way too much time doing brutal army PT. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done before. And uh, you can do it at a commercial gym or, like me, from your garage. Uh, He also includes little historical tidbits every week to keep you interested and to keep you hooked. If you want to challenge yourself or just try something new... Go to www.liftbigeatbig.com and enter the promo code DONKEY to get 15% off. The Phalanx Method. Are you ready to become a warrior of oak and bronze? Good evening from Baghdad. One of the world's oldest cities has become one of the world's newest power centers. As soon as major hostilities broke out between the two oil producers, Iraq and Iran, we came here to Baghdad to watch OPEC at war to look in particular at a regime seeking supremacy in the Gulf and at its remarkable president, Saddam Hussein, one of the least known but most effective rulers in the Middle East. As the conflict between his country and Iran got underway earlier this year, it was Saddam Hussein who declared, whoever climbs over our fence, we shall climb over his roof. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. We're on air. Yeah, I'm Joe. That's Nick. Yes. And um, so before we get into today's uh, first of many episodes, probably at least three or four. Yeah, I want to get a red light outside that door. So people know we're recording. Yeah. No, don't worry. The dogs will come by and start dry heaving just <laughs> enough to, for the mics to pick it up. Or my roommate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how has your weekend been? My weekend? Yeah. It's actually been pretty good. I haven't had to do anything. Just messed with my truck. That's about it. Yeah. Other than that, drank beer. I have been drinking since 10 a.m. this morning, and it's now Sweet. about 9. And uh, you're still drinking. I'm still drinking. I was at I was in Portland all weekend and uh, watching the San Antonio Spurs lose in basketball, and uh, my dogs decided to take that opportunity to shit all over my house, which is nice. <sighs> Yeah, and Nick was nice enough to clean up for me. So uh, it's fucking terrible. So thank you, Nick, for cleaning up uh, canine diarrhea. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and the other great segue into the Iran Iraq War is canine diarrhea. Um, you know, everybody voted, or the Patreon supporters voted on. Um, was that Patreon or was it just a Twitter vote? I think it's Twitter Patreon. vote. Uh, was it? Oh no, I don't remember either one. Anyway, everybody voted on um, this being our next deep dive conflict like multi-parter after the war of 1812 so that's why we're covering it but there's another reason why we're covering it there's another reason why i even made that an option um it's a, it's a war of a lot of different firsts um it's a weird intersection of uh cold war proxy conflicts uh 20th century evolution of warfare it also had the very first helicopter dog fights which we'll totally get into later cherry popping um it had the first two nations uh shoot at each other ballistic missiles um it had human wave attacks i'm like shit you'd see at uh, the Western front of World War I, um, all neatly wrapped up in theocratic revolutionary fervor. It's it's an interesting part of history that everybody doesn't talk about. Yeah, because like the this war, and we're not going to talk about the Gulf War or, or the second Gulf War, at least anytime soon, but this war directly led to those. So it's kind of dumb that people ignore it. Yeah, I'm really going into this blind. So. And you're not alone. Um, I think... Most people only know of this conflict from maybe the helicopter dogfights, which weren't dogfights. Again, we'll talk about that later. Um, they know about the gassing, which led to the L and fall campaign, which we'll talk about later. When you talk about helicopter dogfights, I think either Top Gun. Not quite. Because that'd be fucking sweet. Well, um, they're, they're made to sound way cooler than they actually were. But I think we'll cover that in part two. Sweet. Um, so in this part one... Um, I kind of have to, we have to cover the Iranian revolution um, to really understand what was happening in Iran at the time. Um, Because without the destabling effects of the revolution, there never would have been a war. Uh, Now, the Iranian revolution uh, is like a Western boogeyman to this day because it's, you know, the the Iranian Islamic revolution. 
Um, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, admittedly, there's a lot of good reasons why um, it, it is considered a pretty serious event in Western history. Um, but you kind of need to understand why uh, it was important to the region. Um, you know, the U.S. and Britain especially uh, thought this was a big deal for economic reasons. Right. And the region thought of this as a destabilizing force. Um, think well, of think back to like the French Revolution, why the, the revolutionary France ended up fighting literally all of its neighbors. Um, they were going to there. Everybody's afraid they were going to export this revolution to their house. OK, um, so who are we backing in this? That changes rapidly. And that's okay. something we'll have to cover Sweet. in depth later. Um, but at the time. Um, so before we get that, I kind of have to explain Yes, I understand that the Iranian Revolution deserves significantly more than one episode. Uh, this is something that covered decades, and we're going to give it the yada, yada, yada version, kind of like we did World War I, uh, because <laughs> otherwise this thing would be like 10 episodes long just to get to the war that everybody voted on to hear. So I'll, I'll do my best uh, to explain this in the most ex- like explain like I'm five version, which is what I think we're good at. Nice, yeah. Um, so uh, to really understand the... Uh, revolution you have to go back to 1953 uh in iran you see iran was being led by a prime minister a guy named uh, mohammad mosaddegh he was voted in uh per popular vote um and he was a bit of a leftist populist um he was kind of a a thorn in the west side and the reason why uh so mosaddegh wrote in on a wave of popular uh in popularity in the polls one of the reasons he was so popular is he wanted to nationalize iran's vast oil wealth Mm. Um, to alleviate the crushing poverty that affected everyday Iranians, because well, the the Shah, which is the king of Iran, and if you ever think you're you think a lot of yourself, Shah actually means king of kings in really? Persian. So yeah, that guy thought a lot of himself. Yeah, um, but he was rich as shit. Like if you look up pictures of the Shah, and we'll post pictures of the Shah. His throne is gold. He's wearing like the the normal dictator type uniform oh, just covered in metals that he never energy. got yeah he's, that he never got big dick energy he's small dick energy covering up with a giant dildo on top kind of because like the shah is very weak at this point um he's king as much as uh the queen of england is queen at this point um he wanted people to think he was powerful but the prime minister really held all the right. power and that is going to become an incident we'll talk about in a little bit um so you're asking how did iran have so much oil but be so poor and that's good old-fashioned colonial exploitation, of course. Uh, so uh, Iran was never officially a protectorate or a colony of anybody, uh, but they fell into the United Kingdom's vast sphere of influence and into something I'll call like a soft colonialism. Uh, instead of doing what they normally did back then and just steamrolling natives, putting in a, a puppet, and con- like literally, kind of like they did, yeah, like literally so- controlling the nation, uh, they didn't. Um, uh, they decided to instead do it while wearing business suits. Um, Back in 1933, the Brits knew Iran had vast amounts of oil uh, laying underneath its soil, but they also knew the country was even poorer then and could not exploit those resources for themselves because they had no infrastructure. They had no drilling infrastructure, no, no kind of you know, petroleum engineers, nothing. Right. Uh, so they cozied up to them with the thing of saying um, he'd, give, he'd give the Shah an offer they can't refuse. They would supply all of the technology, expertise, and the original cost to create a vast oil drilling empire within the country. Uh, they would split the profits between them and the Iranians. And eventually through this process, the Iranians would learn the trade. They'd become engineers. They would get stronger, smarter, more wealthy through the things that this partnership would bring. Sounds um, like a sweet deal. Yeah. And if you know the British, you know that's not how this worked. They had their fingers crossed behind the back. Of course. Yeah. Um, so they kind of had this. Uh, idea that this oil would bring them into a golden age. The Shah readily agreed, and thus was born the Ira- Iranian Anglo Oil Company. Um, anybody who's been paying attention to history knows exactly how this worked out. Uh, the British hardly split any profits to the Iranians and only gave them about 15% of mm. the money. Um, they also retroactively billed them for all the construction costs. <laughs> um, so, and the only jobs Iranians would get is as unskilled labor in the plant, uh, in the in the factories. Uh, they wouldn't learn how to be engineers at all. Um, and that those laborers would be forced to work in slave-like conditions. Oh, this deal sucks. Yeah. Uh, to make matters worse, uh, the the Brits gave the money to the Shah, not Iran. Oh, okay. And the Shah, being such a small dude, lined his own pockets. Um, the company also became something of like a modern East India training company, where um, 
instead of just keeping themselves in the side of business, they then started pulling the strings of, of the Iranian state functions. Um, by the time Mossadegh got elected, the oil, if the oil company didn't like you, you got fired. And like, um, if, uh, if, uh, the, the oil company did like you, you get a job in government, uh, which is actually, uh, something that's happening now in, uh, in, I believe Nigeria and the Nigerian Delta Dutch shell owns the government. Really? Yeah. Uh, to the extent that, uh, when the WikiLeaks published all those, uh, cables, I think it was like four years ago, um, that oil executives from, uh, from the Dutch shell company were actually talking directly to the president and telling him what to do. What the fuck? So this isn't something that's ended. It just moved Holy around shit. a bit. Um, so Mossadegh's nationalization of that company, uh, changed all that in 1951. Uh, his plan was to use all this newfound money that they're going to get. Cause remember they're only getting 15% right. um, to begin planning massive sweeping reforms that would bring Iran more in line, honestly, with Western Europe. Um, like they didn't even have things like unemployment compensation or uh, sick benefits. Uh, the, he was going to use that oil wealth to fund all that. Um, there's also something uh, kind of that was taking place uh, in the oil fields where it was kind of like serfdom. You'd be forced to work for people, right? And almost slavery, but you were like, "Yeah, we're totally paying you, bro," but also you can't quit. Yeah. Um, he was going to end that too. Remind you, this is 1950, not 1850. Yeah. So this is all that Iran's pretty backward at the time. Yeah. Um, and Mossadegh was going to use the oil to fix that. Uh, so, the Brits did not take that well, though. I, I would imagine so. <laughs> they don't take much well. No. How much of like how much is this 15 percent that they're getting? Uh, what is that? Peanuts. Peanuts. Uh, it's a couple Some hundred lint. million out of billions. Ooh. Yeah. Some lint in the pocket. Yeah. It in comparison to the amount of money that the the Brits themselves were taking, because I mean, even though the Anglo oil company, uh, Anglo Iranian oil company, was technically a private venture. Much like the East India Company that I compared them to, they were also kind of a government functionary. So Britain was making a ton of money. Yeah. Um, they decided if they couldn't have Iranian oil, nobody could. And they announced uh, what effectively became a blockade. They Burn to- it all. Yeah. They they told all oil tankers that, uh, <laughs> that would go into the area not to take the oil um, because, quote, receipts from the Iranian government would not be accepted in the world market. Why? Why, how could they do this? Why? Well, the Brits said it's our oil and they stole it. Meaning Iran might be the only country on earth that is accused of stealing its own natural resources. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, this effectively completely shut down the uh, Iranian oil industry. Um, without that promised oil revenue, their new reforms can be rolled out. Uh, the British hoped this would uh, cause Mossadegh to back down or the people to rise up against him, effectively doing like a soft yeah, regime change. Okay. Um, neither of those things happened. Oh, um, well. Instead, the Iranian people rallied around their new prime minister, seeing what was happening on face value. This would become a trend that the Iraqis didn't see coming either. More on that uh, in a little bit. But anyway, uh, now Mosdek is kind of lionized uh, as a hero in modern days um, to the anti-imperialist leftists in modern times. Right. He was actually talked about in a Flobot song. Um, oh, really? What song? Ah, uh, fuck. I think it's... Um, same same thing, I think it's called. Same thing. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I could see how, at face value, he's he can see him as an anti-imperialist here. He told the British to fuck off, and he nationalized his country's resources ostensibly to help his country's poor. We don't know if he actually intended to because he never got that far. Right. Um, but what he did next kind of makes him a bastard. He used backroom deals and made uh, all sorts of government allies and new alliances. He allied with the Islamic Scholars Party and the Tuda Party. The Tudas are uh, the Iranian Communist Party, uh, who actually attempted to assassinate the Shah, whose name is Reza Pahlavi, about four years before. Ooh, so yeah, um, spicy. And instead of um, making a government that worked um, like democratically, uh, he actually his whole point was to centralize power on himself. Uh, so he kind of tried to create this populist dictatorship separate from the Iranian monarchy and the Iranian de- democratic institutions. Right. So he was kind of a bastard. Um, so, uh, the British were not happy about this. Um, so they looked towards their friends over in the U S how to fix this problem. If you've listened to this podcast enough times, you know, who's coming next. The CIA. Uh, Why did the CIA get involved? You're asking? Well, 
They threw around words like nationalization and communism, and boom, the CIA so shows we. up. Yeah. <laughs> the CIA shows up like saying somebody's name three times in a bathroom mirror. Uh, in March 1953, uh, Secretary John Foster Dulles ordered the CIA, which was headed by his younger brother, Alan Dulles, uh, who, since you know the U.S. apparently regime changes a family business, uh, to come up with a plan to get rid of the prime minister. That name might sound familiar to you and to longtime listeners. Alan Dulles is the same guy who killed the Congolese prime minister in their Jadoville episode. He's sweet. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going back to the African thing. At this point, uh, the CIA is kind of like a fourth host. It's like me, you, rich from time to time, and then the CIA. Sweet. (laughs) Uh, So uh, the Shah once again made plans to reject them. Um, So like, uh, the Dolises kind of figured the Shah calling himself king, and he did want to play political games. He he was more political when Mossadegh was in office than than not. And so Dolis is like, well, fuck, he wants to be in charge. We'll tell him we're going to get rid of the prime minister. So they told him we're going to get rid of this guy. And he's like, no, 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 we can't get rid of him. The people will lose their shit. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. We're going to do this whether you're on board or not. And uh, so with that in mind, he's like, fuck it. I guess I'm with you guys. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't given much of a choice. Um, so uh, when the Shah decided to join the... Uh, is this all still in the 50s? Yes. Holy yes. fuck. This, uh, this is what's... This is the footprint to the revolution. Mm. Um, so when the Shah changed sides, said, yeah, I'll help you, he um, fucked off to Rome during the whole ordeal in case it went sideways. Uh, he also signed two decrees, one firing Mosadga and the other one promoting General Fazla Zahidi, a guy handpicked by the CIA to be prime minister. The reason why he picked the general, of course, was to have the military help him the, in the coup. The CIA is so trash at doing their draft picks. Uh, yeah, they, they lose fantasy drafts 10 times out of 10. <laughs> uh, so once the military joined in, everything went to hell. Mossadegh was arrested, and uh, after surrendering to General Zahidi, uh, he was taken into custody. But also, it should be pointed out that General Zahidi's whole headquarters, this whole thing, was a bar in the middle of the city. <laughs> Zahidi sounds like a drink in a bar. Yeah. So, uh, well done, sir. I like this. Um, so, when Mossadegh was arrested, Shah returned from Rome and took power. Mm. Uh, now, here's where the thing flips. Before the prime minister's in charge, with him being, with the Shah being a figurehead. Right. Now the Shah's in charge, and the prime minister's there to sign shit. Um, so, he's the commander. Yeah, he, he's now really king. Yeah, Okay. Uh, so the, I mean, the coup centered around giving all the power to the Shah, mostly because the CIA knew the Shah was really easy to control. Uh, I figure they just wave money in his that's face. That's effectively what they did. Uh, money and weapons, um, because you have to realize uh, where Iran is situated in the world, the Middle East and Africa were pretty heavily leaning towards the USSR at the time, um, because. US, USSR's dip, uh, diplomacy was give everybody weapons as long as they yeah. give a wink and a nudge to communism. So Iran is like kind of um, a speed bump uh, to stand against them. Also, mm-hmm. NATO likes oil. Um, so unsurprisingly, the new government quickly agreed to lopsided oil deals with the Britain and U.S., and in turn, the U.S. would heavily fund the Shah's government. During this time, the Tudor party, remember they're the communists, was outlawed, and anybody who spoke against the Shah would end up in jail, or worse, a visit from the brutal Savak secret police. Um, the Ooh. Savak was actually a brainchild of the United States Army colonel who was working for the CIA at the time. Um, his main goal was to create something of a bizarre world version of the KGB, uh, at an all-knowing, all-seeing, terrifying group of spies who pretty much only existed to root out communists. So they're like the opposite of well, KGB. And then they're going around fucking up people who just talk shit on... Uh, yes. Um, okay. Exactly like the KGB, which was, you know, rooted out... was supposed to root out enemies of the state would also root out anybody who didn't like the shot. Yeah. Just talk shit. Um, they did this by kidnapping, torturing and murdering anybody. They kind of thought even looked like a communist. One of the, one of the Savak's first uh, American trainers was a major general Herbert Schwarzkopf. Does that name sound familiar? It really does. Yeah. He was Stormin Norman's dad. Holy fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Savak's official founder, an Iranian guy named Tamir Bakadir would actually end up being assassinated by his own agents a couple of years later. <laughs> this is all in the 50s still. Yeah, uh, this the, the Iranian government is kind of like uh, that picture of the s- snake eating its own tail, <laughs> and it just fucks itself up as it goes around. Uh, using his small army of around 6,000 agents and a massive U.S.-funded army, the, uh, the Shah locked down his rule through violence, terror, and censorship of almost everything he didn't like. And it also turned out 
all that censorship aside, he sucked at ruling. Um, I'd he, imagine. He appointed one of his best friends, a Swiss guy named Ernest Perone, as his close advisor. Despite the fact Perone never actually graduated high school and was not good at anything, he was a poet. Is your boy. You got to yeah. help your boy yeah. out. Uh, he wasn't really good at anything. Uh, the British ambassador to Iran uh, said Perone was, quote, a court jester who only had his job because he could make the Shah laugh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, just to underline how much of a piece of shit That's he was. That's fucking awesome. Um, the Shah's own wife said Perone was, quote, a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> what did he do? He was just. he was, So uh, Perone. Nah, I'm the funny guy. Perone was an interesting character. He was uh, openly homosexual. In nice. the 50s, in Iran, um, uh, and I know this is pre this is okay. pre revolutionary Iran, mind you. So they're not hanging people for being gay. Okay, um, but still, it's the 1950s. Being gay isn't accepted anywhere. Right? The Shah himself said he hated him for being gay, but still kept him around. He must have been really fucking funny. Uh, the Shah's dad, since they were friends from school, uh, the Shah's dad knew about Prone because they hung out all the time. And his dad, um, the Shah's dad, uh, banished him from his house. And said he could only be allowed back in if he worked on the garden. He's, so he's a weird guy. I think the dad probably caught Perone and Shaw. It's possible. Uh, yeah. Though, I mean, the Shaw was pretty open about hating gays, though. I mean, but I think he's also kind of trying to hide something. It wouldn't be the first time. Um, and also, he was so bad that the uh, British uh, spy handler from MI6 uh, called him, quote, a terrible man. It's like the CA calling someone a bad person. Like, man, I must really be a piece of shit. A terrible man. Yeah. That's uh, it? I mean, that's, it's British. So, I mean, it's kind of like, they understate everything. It's I mean, like, yeah, you know, oh, something do. blew up. It was a bad day. <laughs> um, if you need another example of exactly how bad the Shah was at running his country, look no further than when a, in 1959, a British company won a contract with the Iranian government. And then it was suddenly canceled and given to Simons, uh, a different company instead. An investigation by the British embassy soon uncovered the reason why. Uh, the Shah wanted to fuck the wife of the Simons agent for Iran, and the Simons agent consented. So he changed the contract so he could fuck his wife. He, uh, <laughs> he's literally a cuck. I, uh, I don't have anything for that. No, yeah, he, he ruled his. <laughs> I, I did. He, he, That's weird. Powered his nation's economy via his dick. Um, that's like some Roman emperor shit. But uh, so it wasn't until the 60s that the Shah started to seriously piss off the devoted mo- a Muslim population of Iran. Even though he was mostly secular, he kind of left it alone. Yeah. Um, that was until he instituted the White Revolution, which allowed the women the right to vote, uh, would allow public servants to swear their office using whichever holy book they wanted, and establish ties with Israel. All boogeymen what? For, at the time. This fucking place sucks. It gets worse. Jesus. <laughs> uh, it was an effort uh, to force Iran into moder- modernity uh, to kind of like force out its old traditional elites. Um, instead, it led to huge protests by Islamic students and led to mass shootings by police and two more assassination attempts against the Shah, which both failed. Um, I imagine these are pretty bad assassination attempts. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of guns in the country. Someone's probably taking shots at them. Probably. Probably uh, strays. Yeah, Assassination attempt. Yeah. Um, uh, well, they probably weren't military because his military is pretty loyal to him. You kind of have to be to open fire on college kids. <laughs> uh, the Shah's glorious white revolution, however, would lead directly to his downfall. Um, widespread demonation, demonstrations against the Shah began in 1970s. And uh, the Shah couldn't help but just keep shooting himself in the dick uh, because in the middle of the protest, he just had a hugely expensive party commemorating the 25th, 100th anniversary of the founding of the Persian Empire. Uh, the celebration cost upwards of tens of millions of dollars. And as one historian put it, quote, as the foreigners reveled in drink forbidden by Islam, Iranians were not only excluded from the festivities, but some were starving to death in the streets. <laughs> but yeah. the party was lit. Yeah, the, but the party was awesome. Uh, <laughs> as long Every- as you weren't Iranian. <laughs> yeah, everything was slapping. Yeah. Party was the hottest thing in the block, assuming you weren't dying of starvation. Except your oven. Yeah. Uh, to make matters worse, inflation began to skyrocket, which caused steep austerity measures to be taken by the government. Uh, you know, cutting spending pretty much everywhere, except for where the spending was really bad, which was the Shah's personal expense fund. Um, Fucking partying. It, you know, he came up with some really interesting ways to um, keep money. So uh, all political parties are banned except one. Um, 
that party uh, membership was mandatory. Uh, being a party required you to pay dues. All of those dues went directly to the Shah. How much? <laughs> I mean, even like any kind of party dues. Because, uh, I mean, if membership is mandatory, you have to think the vast majority of the, of the people in this country are, are poor as shit. Yeah. Any kind of money out of their pockets is, is too much. That makes sense. Uh, well, and they all knew it went directly to the rich guy. <laughs> where like they was literally sitting at a golden throne full of golden eagles and shit. Full of golden eagles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, With the gay jester next to him. Yeah. Uh, the, the gay Swedish jester guy. Um, of course, uh, these cuts did not hurt the rich. And uh, instead, it affected the poor and unskilled li- uh, laborers who were largely social and religiously conservative from the countryside. Uh, all of those groups would end up fueling the f- uh, soon-to-be protests that would just destroy everything. Um, so this place sucks. It's not good if you're no, not the shop. No, it's not. So do the people, all right, they pay the dues. Do they get a party as well? Uh, they weren't invited to the last one. See, that's horseshit. Why am I paying dues if I can't party? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, I think the only thing you get uh, for. What do you get out of it? Yeah. What do you get out of being in the party? It's only one party and there's no elections. Like, <laughs> like yeah. Like, what? what's the point? The, the part, the, this party seems like a pyramid scheme. Like, the, <laughs> yeah, the Shah was like, and, and his advisor like, dude, how can we get more money out of yeah. these people? <laughs> Just really good at selling a shitty pyramid scheme. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like all of the really, really bad uh, pyramid schemes that like military spouses take part in. Yes. Except there's not even a product. If you just if you don't pay, <laughs> you just get visited by the deadly secret police who will rip your toenails out. <laughs> Here's your product right here. Yeah. Um, to add fuel to the fire, uh, whenever there was a protest, the uh, police would just shoot at them. Okay. And uh, then the protests were taken over. So originally the protests started out as secular and egalitarian in nature. Like it was just the broke, poor, hungry people like this is fucked up. We need something. Um, And then they were joined in mass by religious students and devout Muslims from across the country, which is how um, the the revolution turned into what we know today. Also, uh, interesting footnote. uh, One of the major organizers and foot soldiers, I guess you'd call them of the beginning parts of this revolution were women. And if you know anything about modern day Iran, it's pretty goddamn surprising. Yeah. Um, Seeing how they can't, they can't really do anything. They can't, they, they have one step over Saudi women. That's about it. Yeah. Um, So the Shah's army had uh, no riot control training. Um, It's, they actually had no less than lethal weapons. Um, One of the weird footnotes is, um, the Carter administration refused to sell them tear gas and rubber bullets, uh, afraid of how they would use them. Even though at this point, the Shah's army had been machine gunning people. Here's some bullets. Yeah. Yeah. Like, here's some shit that actually kills. They wouldn't sell them rubber bullets, but they'd sure the fuck sell them conics after conics of real bullets. Um, <laughs> Imagine them going over the paperwork on that. Yeah. Uh, so the, and I'm, I'm not forgiving the soldiers for this, but um, they had no other way. Like, there was, uh, the, there's two options here. Listen to the protesters, which obviously the Shah wasn't going to do. Right. And the only other thing that he had was a giant fucking army. Couldn't he just use his jester? Uh, he's probably his fucking idea. I don't know. Like, hey, go out there, make them laugh. Make yeah. them forget about their yeah. terrible situation. They'll give in. them a fucking yuck. Maybe it they'll stop worked. protesting. Yeah, so the, instead the army would just fucking machine gun protesters in the street. Um, without, And eventually, you know, this wasn't like a army wide thing. Uh, some units completely refuse to take part in it and they would just leave their weapons in the ground and go home. Uh, other people would join the protesters. I wish I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some of my days suck. Yeah. Well, at least you're not machine gunning Sick. people in the street. It's uh, true. Unless you, uh, you took part in Jade Helm anyway. <sighs> Next week. <laughs> that, that's that, that's oh, already, yeah, that's that was this last week. Yeah. This, this is the one after. My, my days are off. Well, I mean, it also helps that Jade Helm episode literally came out today and we it were did. recording today. Yeah. yeah. Wait, no, it comes out tomorrow. Well, it'll be today to me when I release it like 1 a.m. That's true. Um, so on September the 4th, 1978, during the celebration of Eid, the holiday at the end of the holy month of Ramadan, um, for those not familiar, uh, nearly half a million people uh, decided to go pray outside in, uh, in Tehran. It was greenlit. Um, it must have been a nice day. It was. And... Uh, well, it was the the it wasn't supposed to be a demonstration. That's how they got around it. Obviously, the Shah does not allow demonstrations against him. I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you haven't picked up on that, um, so they framed it as um, 
well, we're just going to go celebrate Eid and Eid is like the, one of the biggest holidays in, in Islam. So of course the Shah was like, sure. Okay. Well, it quickly turned into a protest march with about a half million people taking part. Um, yeah. Do they get machine gun? I, I feel like that's a stupid question to ask right now. <laughs> Spoiler alert. They get machine gunned. Figured. Um, soldiers responded and shot somewhere between 60. If you listen to uh, reports of time or 1000 people, Holy fuck. If you listen to <laughs> other sources of the time, uh, the event became known as black Friday, which now, um, the United oh. States celebrates and goes, uh, basically the same thing shopping. happens, uh, <laughs> no, in certain areas. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's something common. There's like a hundred different black Fridays through history and black Sundays yeah, and, I've heard. and bloody Sundays. But yeah, uh, this is pretty, uh, run the mill, despotic type, destroy the protest movement type oh. stuff. Well. Yeah. Um, and this is where you see, v- uh, mass, um, desertions from the military starts to st- uh, start to begin. Um, and uh, in response, the opposition and the, sh- the strikers called for a general strike. Um, uh, if, pe- if you aren't prepared or aren't aware, uh, a general strike is where just everybody refuses to go to work. Hmm. Um, regardless of what your job is, it's not like your local, you know, Teamsters local 405 yeah. decides to strike. It's everybody. So it cripples economies, which is the whole point. Um, the strike paralyzed the country as millions of people took to the streets. Holy shit. Um, protesters began calling for the military and police to join them, and they did by the tens of thousands. That's awesome. Um, which is interesting. You don't see this happen very often no, in that- popular – like uh, a, a good version is the Maidan uprising in Ukraine. Um, the police and uh, I think they're called like the Barracoots or something like that, the police special forces, were shooting unarmed protesters until the very end. Um, the military was uh, didn't take huge part, but they weren't on the side of the protesters either. Um, Normally, in situations like this, um, two things tend to happen. The police almost always back the state um, for reasons that are deeply sociological and everything else. And uh, the military ends up backing people, uh, mostly because the military remembers that they probably have family members in the crowd. Yeah. And their job is to fight invading armies or invade other people, not to shoot their own people. And the police end up uh, staying on board because maybe they assume it's going to fail. and They don't want to lose their job. Yeah. Not so many worries about that this time. Um, and once they started, uh, deserting by the thousands, uh, they started also giving guns to the protesters. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so the once unarmed protesters now managed to get their hands on thousands of weapons. And now they had thousands of soldiers and police in the ranks. Um, and again, another footnote, some of their best, um, early revolutionary fighters in Iran were women. Hmm. I think many of them probably regret that now if they're still alive. (laughs) Um, at the same time, Iranian military leaders stopped issuing orders to their soldiers who didn't defect, leaving them just sitting around and doing nothing. So they just nice. went home. Um, protesters surged through the streets of Tehran, burning everything that could be considered Western to the ground. This is um, uh, one of the biggest out, uh, surges of like anti-Western sentiment because uh, while the protests were originally against the Shah, then they ballooned to be who was propping the Shah up, and right. everybody knew it was the West. Um, so in October 1979, the Shah flew to the U.S. for cancer treatment. Uh, this spawned wild anti-American sentiment among the revolutionaries who began to fear another American coup was in the works. Mm. Remind you, people knew who did it last time. Yeah. It was not a good secret. <laughs> um, this time it was going to be directed against the revolutionaries. Also by now, everybody knew the Shah was on his way out one way or another. Whether this protest finally surged through the gates of the palace and killed everybody, or he stepped down, or what have you. They knew the end was in sight. The end game could be seen. Um, so the revolu- revolutionaries wanted the shot to stand trial for his cames, uh, crimes against the people, uh, whether it be machine gunning protesters or having Fuck, the, yeah. having the Safak break into uh, people's houses in the night and make them disappear. Shit like that. They wanted to stand trial. You didn't pay your fucking dues. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't pay dues to my political party. Yeah. And by my political party, I mean my sweet pool fund. Um, you see that sweet chair? <laughs> your due money right yeah. there yeah when do i spend your dues on last night check out this robe yeah. <laughs> jester dance for me <laughs> it's real raptor skin uh see these boots eagle feather son bald eagles <laughs> <laughs> necklace is pure california condor uh, jester oh, dance yeah dance look, for me gay jester look what he's wearing yeah. nothing at all armani <laughs> also uh God, <laughs> he was so bad about hiding it. 
Like, I understand now we have a president who literally has his name in gold letters on the side of golden buildings and shit. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> at least he did, He had those before he became president. <laughs> um, he might. Does he have a gesture? Does, yeah, his name is uh, Mike huh, Pence. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw that in your head turning like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for setting the knock that one out of the park, man. Good setup. Uh, no, that was not scripted. Um, so, uh, the the revolutionaries decided they need to get some leverage. And it, I know you know what's coming next. You just don't quite even put the pieces together quite yet. They did so by storming the American embassy in Tehran and taking everybody hostage inside. Oh, God. Yeah. Was it? It's that one. It's the one oh, you're thinking yeah. of. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, there's some. Okay. So there's some debate uh, whether or not the, the storming of the embassy was always planned, uh, which I do believe it was, uh, or it was a protest gone wild. Um, I'm not taking a stance on either side here, uh, other than my opinion, uh, but I will say most historical evidence sides on the fact that this was absolutely a pran- planned operation. I'm going on the wild side. It, I mean, it's this is kind of like, uh, if you believe Benghazi was a protest gun under control or a planned attack. Uh, most things point to a planned attack. Yeah. You don't really don't bring thousands of rifles to a protest. Wild. Yeah. Um, Clearly. Uh, so, uh, but I will say it was an oddly specific target at a oddly specific time for a random raid to happen at that at that exact what moment. Is a specific time. Uh, well, they, they, like I said, the Shah went to the United States. Oh, okay. And they wanted okay. leverage for the Americans to give him back. Okay, so he's still in the United States at this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, six months later, of course, the U.S. launched a rescue mission that uh, we won't go into here because it it was called Operation Eagle Claw, yeah. I believe. Um, it went terribly bad and uh, made everybody look involved uh, everybody that was involved look like a jackass uh it was pretty much maybe it could be like a side episode uh or an addendum like at, the end, at the end of the series yeah. but just know it went badly um it made carl look like a fucking idiot um so the shah stepped down from the throne and fled to egypt on the morning of january uh 1979 the same day that his prime minister a guy named shapur bakatir attempted to assert himself as a new ruler of Iran rather than the revolutionaries. Um, Bakatir was a monarchist, but he wanted to put things back how it used to be with the prime minister really controlling everything. This went nowhere for quite a few reasons. Everybody saw Bakatir as a Shah loyalist and a puppet of the Western powers, both of which were absolutely true. Um, He had lived the majority of his life in France, and uh, he was actually motivated specifically to get into government because he hated the leader of the opposition. A guy many of you have been waiting for me to talk about and all of you know about his name is Ayatollah Rohia Khomeini. Um, Bakatir wasn't stupid though. Uh, he knew how much power Khomeini had. So he came up with a plan to kind of push him to the side. A plan that when I explain it to you, you'll quickly realize how fucking stupid it is. Um, his plan was to create a Vatican like state in the city of Combs and appoint Khomeini as a weird Muslim pope, which had never existed before. <laughs> this plan sucks already. It's really bad. Uh, it's the type of plan that only makes sense to you if you are so fucking desperate you can't think of anything else. Um, he invited the exiled Ayatollah to come back to Iran, uh, and he, he he did, and he was greeted by crowds so large he could not travel by road and instead had to travel by helicopter because millions of people clogged every road in the country to welcome him back. Fuck. He was popular. Yeah. Um, pretty much immediately, uh, Khomeini denounced Bakatir's government and set up his own down the street. <laughs> what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is he had to have seen that coming yeah that's fucking awesome <laughs> yeah um i still like the whole uh he had to travel by helicopter yeah that's fucking awesome that's actually pretty common uh i told uh Khomeini was so popular he really could not go in, in um outside without being swarmed by crowds um which is interesting because uh it was around this time where yeah, Khomeini was never secretive about what he wanted to stand up from the beginning of the revolution. When he kind of became the revolution's figurehead, when it was co-opted from everybody, he always said they needed Islamic Republic set up with Sharia law. Um, and everybody, everybody's like, you know, it's fucking better than the Shah. Yeah. And that's no, how yeah. you know, a lot of people think like, how the fuck did this popular revolution? Cause you know, there's no way that many people to include millions of women would support effectively going back in time. Um, but when you realize that they that the Shah was an even worse option, it's kind of mind blowing. That's how you know you're a real piece of shit. Yeah, like 
you have to think like how bad do you have to be as a ruler to think a you know, repressive theological uh, republic because they call themselves a republic uh, was a better choice than you. Hmm. See, because at the time, I mean, they have several. I'm not going to go into like all the different layers of revolutionary Iranian government because there's it's it's in depth, but um, it's effectively a theological dictatorship. Like they that was willed into power by the people. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, it, like I said, immediately set up his own government. Uh, Bakhtir insisted that he was the one that was really in charge, but he had no means to enforce he was in charge. Um, because Ayatollah was so popular, any move against him was suicide. He had no military because it deserted and went to the revolutionaries, and the police is all gone. So, <laughs> it was him going, no, really, guys, I'm the one in charge. Yeah. And, and that's it. It would be like some the governor of fucking North Dakota going, no, guys, really, I'm president, and then just screaming really loud. And then people in North Dakota not even knowing that they're in North Dakota. <laughs> uh, like, what's North Dakota? Why do we exist? Uh, if we have any listeners from North Dakota, we, we love you. Uh, but also, uh, why are you in North Dakota? Why are you not just Dakota? Why is there a North <laughs> yeah. and a South? Did you have a revolution? Uh, I mean, if you if you put the two Dakotas together, your population is about fifty people. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> also, they're the two states I literally have never met anybody from. Same, and I don't know if I can say that about any other state. Same as well. So I'm going to say, and this is just a theory: they don't actually exist. Ooh, yeah, it's like the uh, was it the Finland doesn't exist joke conspiracy theory. Yes, you know what? <laughs> With your uh, uh, Patreon money. I think we can go investigate this. I don't know. We might get thrown in a Walmart death camp. Oh fuck! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, the military deserted, like I said, in mass. Uh, but the ones that were left behind weren't getting paid anymore because there was no real government, uh, and so he literally had nothing. There yeah. was no state army at this time. Did he even have a jester? No, as f- you know. I couldn't really find what happened to that guy when this whole thing yeah, went down. Yeah, I'm really wondering what happened to him. I, I know he escaped with the Shah, but his later life is kind of a question mark. Also, I didn't really look into it because I'm a fraud. And a, oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, updates to come. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, but to make things even worse, so, you know, when Bakhtir took over, he formed a whole government, uh, like cabinet ministers, everything. Well, within a week, all of them defected to the other government. <laughs> how uh, does it, <laughs> yeah, like, 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 how do you pick someone that's so unloyal? Like they're only going to stick around for like six days. Yeah. Like, sorry, bro, I gotta go. The other side, way cooler. Yeah, like the other side of the pillow. Yeah, uh, within ten days, Bacteria's government completely collapsed. Uh, so, what is real? What do you mean? What is real? It's almost like all right. So there's no government. So uh, there's it, no military. There's no police. It's fucking and chaos. The other side is like, we're kind of not, but we kind of are the government. It's total chaos. Like, um, during this time, there's uh, people randomly wandering the streets, getting revenge on one another. Um, uh, and we'll talk about a little bit later when we talk about the uh, Iranian army. But it's like a rage against the machine. It's almost anarchy. Yeah. Um, people are like stealing shit from places that used to belong to the Shah. Um, normal post-revolutionary activity like anybody who they think was loyal to the Shah was probably going to die uh shit like that uh so back to ran back to france uh after all this within and then this all happened within 10 days of ayatollah returning to the country yeah um to make matters worse for back to uh the agents of the islamic uh, republic would find him there in 1991 and ass- assassinate him on his front porch via kitchen knife Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> fuck yeah not a happy ending for Mr. No. Bakhtir. Uh, so the country that the revolutionaries took control of was in total shambles. Months of striking had destroyed their oil, uh, the oil output. Uh, to make matters worse, there's no technicians to run the oil fields, and anyone from the West had ran from the revolution months ago. Uh, their economy was completely destroyed. Half country the ca- went to shit. Half the capital had been burnt down in the revolution, and now they had to figure out how to run the government. Uh, as anybody remotely connected to the deposed monarchy was not allowed to hold any office whatsoever. All right. Anybody who can fit into the gold chair really well. Oh, there's definitely no gold tier anymore. They melted that shit down or it went missing. Um, I would imagine it's probably still sitting there. Yeah. The the Ayatollah definitely was like farting on it. (laughs) (laughs) Just pulling his, uh, 
his robes up and bare ass farting. On it. <laughs> it's like when you fart in the shower, you're like, oh, <laughs> those are like the worst ones. Yeah, imagine this old ass. I thought this is the '60s, <laughs> like go- cozying into the fucking Shah's golden shower. And- <laughs> Did you see fucking skin? <laughs> loose, loose skin. <laughs> Dusty fart. Uh, so, as for the defense, uh, and by defense, I mean the military. The the military, which was formerly known as the Imperial Iranian Armed Forces, ceased to exist since about Black Friday. Uh, racked by mutinies, indecision, and desertion, there's almost nothing left. What left of the, provi- uh, the professional military was wiped out by what? Their own government. Nice. The new revolutionary government itself was so thir- uh, was wiped it out so thoroughly that Stalin himself would be proud. Uh, the military had been the Shah's main power base, so like there wasn't a trust between the two. I mean, you think this is the same military was machine gunning people in the streets, even though thousands of I them, wouldn't trust anything going on, especially something connected to like the shop. Yeah. Um, so you have to think like when they took over, like the military is the enemy. That's how they looked at I'd, it. Honestly, at that point, I'd imagine anybody's the enemy. Everybody is everybody's enemy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like the little kid on the side of the street. The fuck are you looking yeah. at, kid? He's got shifty looking fucking eyes. <laughs> yeah. Call the Savak. <laughs> um, so, uh. The military and the police being the Shah's main power base and means of repression got torn to shreds. Mm. Almost every single general officer was dragged in front of a firing squad and everybody else was pretty much exiled. Everybody's fucking dying. <laughs> yeah. It turns out the Ayatollah really just wants to rule a country full of corpses. Yeah. Um, the Ayatollah instead created the Revolutionary Guard Corps, something to counterweight the regular army mm. just in case. He also established another well-known group and one you may have heard of named Hezbollah. Really? Yes. <laughs> this is a... F- <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad I came into this blind. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> it gets worse. Um, so uh, the people of Iran joined in on these purges. Um, there reportedly so many Iranian citizens were, being, were breaking into people's homes and murdering them. Uh, anyone that was considered any enemy of the revolution. And uh, the Ayatollah had to kindly ask them to stop murdering each other. <laughs> It got that bad. Yes. Yes. <laughs> hey, I really want to rule people. Can you people stop dying? I would like that to rule a fucking Halloween hellscape yeah. full of skeletons. Um, like, you, you know, you're acting like drastic when the guy who's like, okay, everybody with any stars on their military uniform is going to get shot. But whoa, guys, you went a little too far with killing the baker. Yeah. Uh, so, the Revolutionary Guard Corps was uh, now in charge of protecting the revolution, which is actually something they're tasked with to this day. Um, they're still fucking around? Yeah, they still exist. Holy shit. Uh, the revolu- pretty much everything you ever hear about Iran, like every run-in with the United States military. Uh, to Remember that time where a whole bunch of sailors got taken hostage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Revolutionary Guard Corps. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the sailors was wearing white socks. Yes, he was. So uh, <laughs> that's one of the reasons. He, he got turned into a meme hardcore. <laughs> yeah, he uh, did. But, it was uh, great. To this day, the Revolutionary Guards are considered um, the main body of power for the Islamic government. Like uh, everybody talks about, why isn't there an uprising? Why does the everyday Iranian military upri- uh, like join in an uprising? The Guard Corps is armed better. Ooh, that's well, how they keep everybody in check. So they're, called, they're called the Guard Corps. They're called the Revolutionary Guard Corps. All right, one second. I'm a part of the Guard Corps. No, I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah. Sounds really. Uh, bad. So I, I believe really their, their uh, Persian name is like the Pazadron. Ooh. Yeah. The Posidron? Yeah. It's a transformer. <laughs> it transforms into someone who just kills your neighbor. <laughs> yes. Um, so th- them being the, the the guardians of the revolution, whatever you want to call them, they found coups being plotted pretty much everywhere they went. Um, not real ones, mind you. Uh, and the Atollah insisted everyone they found to be involved had to die. Coups at Ant's house. Yeah. Kill yeah. that bitch. They, 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 everybody who looked at them wrong was plotting something. <laughs> yeah. Um, by 1980... What was left of the Iranian military is little more than untrained, badly armed militia that was really only good at killing its own people. They seemed like they were really fucking good at that. They were. Um, to make matters worse, Iran's uh, number one enemy and, uh, sorry, to make matters worse, Imperial Iran's number one defense supplier, the United States, was now a sworn enemy. They took, a, I mean, remember, they still have the hostages at the embassy during oh, yeah, this time. Oh, yeah, yes, okay. Um, they also, the Shah was a puppet that they overthrew, so they're not going to like that very much. Um, so the Islamic Revolution made no friends in its neighborhood either. Uh, and the Ayatollah did not make this any easier on anybody. Uh, so when he took over, 
uh, the Ayatollah did not think this as an Iranian revolution. He thought that, so this is actually a good way to think about this. Um, if you know anything about the Russian revolution, uh, there was two ways of thinking. Uh, one was the Trotskyist line of thought where everybody, need, all workers of the world need to uh, uh, launch revolutions against right. their government. And then there's the Stalinist way of thinking was socialism in one country, just focus on Russia. Yeah. When you think about it that way, the Ayatollah was certainly Trotskyist in his revolution. Every Arab and every Muslim had to join in on the revolution. Yeah. Um, as you can imagine, other Middle Eastern countries did not like this because, I mean, they didn't want to lose their positions as being I would dictators. So, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, there was a handful of uh, pretty secular leaders in the Middle East at the time. Uh, people think of the Middle East now as um, you know, a hardline Muslim dictatorship everywhere they look. Right. And while strongmen are still super popular during this time in the region. Most of them are secular. You have Saddam Hussein in Iraq, which we will obviously talk about more. Um, you have Anwar al-Sadat in Egypt, who believed in like pan-Arabism uh, um, to the point that they actually formed a weird pseudo-EU for a while. Um, yeah, it didn't work out. It's called like the, uh, the Arab Republic. What the fuck? Yeah, at one point, someone, I, I believe it was Iraq, even changed their flag to... I, it's I didn't I didn't do a lot of so yeah, somebody yeah, out there yeah. is going to prove me wrong on right. this but um, yeah there's a lot of pan Arabism going on uh, which is you know like a ethnic nationalism yeah um, because you have to think the Middle East the way you look at it um, it didn't naturally form that way um, there's there's a reason why there's such crisp lines in between those countries they were just cut up and divided uh, by mostly England. Um, like, oh, look, boom, there's Iraq, boom, there's Iran, boom, there's Egypt, uh, the borders for Egypt and Israel and, and Syria and Jordan, like, and Saudi Arabia. Those didn't exist that way. Right. <laughs> so there's a lot at the time, there's a lot of pan-Arabism and um, uh, Iraq being a, a huge part of it and Egypt being another. Um, but Ayatollah saw as pan-Islamism, uh, everybody had to join the revolution. Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you don't join the revolution, you're a bad Muslim. This made him a lot of enemies. Um, so that meant uh, the surrounding secular countries that were Arabs, mostly Iraq, was vehemently against him. Uh, could it be because, I don't know, shit talking? Well, they didn't want to lose power. Um, yeah, that. Okay, yeah. And you have to, you have to think. Um, even before this... Um, Iraq's a dictatorship. I mean, even if they have a president, sure, but um, they nobody wants their government to collapse and be taken over by a whole bunch of dudes from across the border. Those dudes are fucking savages, and even the ones They're fucking insane, and and even the ones who were uh, Islamic dictatorships themselves, like Saudi Arabia, were like, "Whoa, no, th- no, thank you." <laughs> <laughs> so the. So he wanted revolution to go across. Yeah, he he wanted okay. he wanted a religious wide revolution to to put in theocracies okay. across the region. Um, I could see where which that is would... exactly uh, not not exactly different, but the same uh, of why, uh, like I said at the beginning of the episode, how revolutionary France ended up involved in so many wars. Nobody wanted that revolution to be exported, so they had to contain it and kill it. Mm. Um, this clashed with uh, this idea clashed with uh, one Mr. Saddam Hussein. Um, even after this, uh, so uh, this whole time, uh, the Ayatollah is like, you know, you need to uh, revel, you need to revolt, revolt, you need to arm yourselves, you need to kick out your rage. Yeah. Uh, so even after that, Saddam made a speech in July 1979 where he praised the revolution because Saddam hated the Shah for constantly fucking with Iraq. So. Um, before before uh, the Shah got kicked out, a long, long time before, um, I believe in the 50s, 60s, yeah. um, the CIA, uh, go figure, uh, with the Shah funded uh, full-scale Kurdish uprisings in, in northern Iraq more than once. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, what, the future president of Kurdistan, a guy named uh, Barzani, was actually one of the people he helped, uh, the CIA and the Shah helped fund an arm. So there, there's a reason why Iraq was kind of happy to see the revolution. Yeah. Um, but also they saw the revolution as a super weakening force in Iran. Um, I mean, they saw the chaos that was going on. They saw a country break. Yeah, the, the country was just folding in on itself and yeah. stabbing the shit out of itself. Um, 
He also called for an Iraq Iran friendship based on just leaving each other alone. Like, hey, the Shah's gone and the CIA isn't there anymore, so let's be buddies. Yeah. Um, the I totally rejected that. You stay on your that. side. Yeah. Let's just not fuck with each other. The Iran totally rejected it. Um, you know, and this is something that I don't mean to do, but it's going to happen. You have to be a real bastard to make Saddam Hussein look like the adult in the room here. No, yeah, no. I can see that, yeah. Because <laughs> honestly, I was on Saddam's side right there. Yeah. I don't see who wouldn't be. It's, I don't think I know anybody. It's weird to think that, I mean, going forward when we talk about the war and uh, and going forward during this episode, it's really hard for me uh, to make, A, the Iranian Revolution look like a bad idea at the time, and B, make Saddam Hussein look like a bad guy right now. I mean, obviously, he had his own machinations that he was working on. Like, he absolutely wanted to take over parts of southern Iran. He definitely wanted to take over the Shad al-Arab waterway uh, to further his own economic means. But, like, he, he didn't – like, I don't think he would have tried if um, if the Ayatollah was like, okay, let's be cool. Because he wouldn't have had a reason – he wouldn't have had a – even if it was a bad reason to go to war. He didn't have one yet. Yeah. Um, that would quickly spiral out of control. <laughs> Um, like everything going on so far. Yeah, it doesn't really come... It, nobody really gets a handle on things until this war is over. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing's looking too good. I wish I could say it gets better, but... It gets worse? So much. Yes! <laughs> Soon people start gassing one another, so... Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Saddam completely abandoned his overtures of friendship and began to instead to see, uh, see Iran as a serious threat. Uh, when he... I mean, when he was like, hey, let's be buddies... He was kind of hoping the all the Ayatollah's calls for revolution were like for his for his audience, like they weren't for his kind of like today. You hear politicians talking about, "Hey, countries need to do this." Yeah, but they say that in the U.S. because they're not going to go over there and say that to them because it's considered a dick move. But the Ayatollah was like, "No, really, Iraqi should kick you the fuck out and install me." So like, he's like, "Okay, he's serious. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's oh, not just doing, he's not doing this for the home crowd." Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of underlying factors at play. He saw the Algiers Agreement, uh, which was the agreement who actually created Iran, uh, Iran and Iraq, uh, as unfair because uh, Iran's southern Kujistan region was populated by Arabs rather than Persians. Uh, so he, so that he saw that meaning as well. They're Arabs. They speak Arabic. They kind of have a lot in common with Iraqis. They should be Iraqi subjects. Yeah. Um, that was kind of like how Hitler thought. Uh, just because people spoke Smooth. German meant they should be Germans. Yeah. Um, you know, they saw them in the Sudetenland and parts of Poland during World War II. Um, I'm sure the fact that the Kuzhistan region just happened to be the main area of Iranian oil wealth had nothing to do with it. Really? <laughs> Holy shit. That's like where all their oil is. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're Arabic. <laughs> yeah. They're totally Iraqis. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're not. Yeah. We're not, dude. <laughs> and that will come into play, too. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Saddam also wanted to finish Iraq's transformation into a true regional power. Uh, like the main Arab superpower replacing Egypt uh, to further bolster his opinion towards the war. Saddam poured money into his military, which is being heavily supplied by the state of the art Soviet equipment at the time. Um, and the Iranians collapsed entirely in comparison. Now um, the bath party, which uh, Saddam obviously was president of uh, was the Arab socialist bath party. So uh, because socialist is the name, you know what happens next Soviets make it rain. Nice. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't Love it. socialist or communist whatsoever, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, that, that's what he, he knew how to get stuff. And you'll see that again later. He knows how to play everybody. So not stupid. No. Um, he, I mean, for how long he ran that country. Right. There's no way you could be that stupid. Right. Um, incompetent in a lot of aspects, but not dumb when it came to holding on to power. Right. Um, kind of like the Shah himself. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Iranian exiles, so uh, a lot of allies or monarchists of the Shah ran south to Iraq um, for to save their own lives, to escape the fucking seas of blood yeah. in the streets. Uh, and every time they came to Iraq, they're like, dude, the government's weak as shit. Like, the Ayatollah doesn't control anything. You could go in there and take them out. Well, I imagine they're still, like, fucking each other up and on they, the, in the streets. More importantly, they told uh, Saddam that it was incredibly unpopular. Ooh. Now we know that's stupid, and anybody who's looking at newsreels that we have seen knows this revolution's popular. Uh, but Saddam believed it. Um, yeah. He kind of thought uh, the same thing Hitler did uh, right before Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa. If you just kick in the front door, the whole rotten structure will come down. He thought that about Iran, which 
almost looked true. I mean, they kind of, they cannibalized their own military it and police. Sounds true. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I actually don't fault Saddam for, for believing this. Yeah. Um, it didn't help that uh, Saddam was emboldened by Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, who hated Iraq, but were afraid of Ayatollah's revolution coming to their doorstep. I feel like they were giving him like a neck rub, like, oh, you got this, dude. Oh, more than that, they paid for his army. Yes. <laughs> They're like, look, we're not going to help you, help you, but like, we'll pay your bills if you, if you, if you get the chance. Go next door and take them out. If you know what we mean. Yeah. Um, their whole plan was to go in and kill the revolutionary movement before it could flourish. Um, okay. Yeah. So by September, the two countries were shooting at each other on the border and alternatively shelling each other's border towns. Um, eventually, Iraq got bolder and bolder each day, uh, realizing, hey, we're not exactly facing a lot of resistance. And they started attacking towns. Okay. Uh, they launched full-scale raids in Iran, and uh, Iran's shambling corpse of a military was totally unable to repel them. Um, There's actually more than one occasion where they would go into an area that by all means, should have been heavily guarded because it's strategic, completely empty. Um, the the units that were there were incredibly under strength and hardly armed. Uh, their vehicles had no gasoline or replacement parts. Nice. So, um, and the worst part is, this just made things worse. Everything was 10 level. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you have to think like Iraq's like, we're, we are going to be fighting the Imperial Iranian Army, which has spent the last 50 fucking years getting a blank check from the West to, to fund. And um, they rolled into town and found some dudes in flip flops and like <laughs> pickup trucks out of gas. And they're like, maybe we can invade these dudes. Oh shit, that's working. <laughs> yeah. Uh, these attacks swelled Saddam's head about how easy a ground invasion would be. Is he using tanks at this oh, yeah, time? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I figured. He's not like, and it, this isn't the invasion yet. These are just like border clashes. Mm, but okay. T- Saddam really liked his tanks. Okay. Um, I don't know. He never learned how to use them. No, <laughs> but I, he liked them. I have a battle on the top of my head. Yeah, that I, I can I think, think of. It, I think it's considered, um, especially in the region, um, huge armor formations are kind of like bling. Like, look at this giant tank division I had. Like the Medina division during the Gulf War. Like yeah. he named them all. They all had cool names. Um, to like, and they all had super uh, state-of-the-art, expensive Soviet tanks, which. You know, this is the time where these were actually cutting edge. This isn't like rolling on a T-72 in 1990 like he did. Like, this is like, oh, shit, look what he's got. Yeah. Um, He's hot shit. Yeah. Uh, So after numerous border skirmishes, the Iranians actually made things worse for themselves by completely withdrawing from the Algiers Agreement, meaning they no longer agreed what Iraqi's borders were. So that means, like, with the message of, we'll settle it ourselves. So... Did did they openly say this? Yes. Okay, so at that point, imagine Saddam was just like, okay. Yeah, like, it. it's really fucking stupid. Um, it, it reminds me of uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. I'm like, the knight has all of his fucking limbs cut yeah. off. He's like, just a flesh wound, I got this. I'll, I'll fucking bite your shins. That, yeah. that was the Iranian military right now. Like, bring it on! And they have no legs. Good movie. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Three days later, Saddam, standing in front of the Iraqi parliament, said, quote, The frequent and blatant Iranian violations of Iraqi sovereignty have rendered the 1975 Algiers Agreement null and void. This river, which he means the Shat al-Arab, uh, is the main body of water that bisected the two countries' southernmost borders, must have its Iraqi Arab identity restored, as it was throughout history in name and in reality, with all the disposal rights emanating from full sovereignty over the river. We in no way wish to launch a war against Iran. What? Yeah. Literally the next day, he launched an attack Iran. So to ensure, so he attacked a border crossing, but it wasn't a raid. He attacked and secured it to ensure that the route stayed open for future armored assaults into Iran. I'm starting to think we just can't trust it on. Weird. Yeah, I know. Uh, so then on September 22nd, 1980, Iraq launched a full scale invasion of Iran. And that is where we will end for this week. Dun, dun, dun. Nice. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so as you can tell, like, like I said, if I, it wasn't for the revolution, this doesn't happen. Um, but at the same time, I feel like Saddam wasn't so stupid that he no. would have him like, I'm going to do this. If it wasn't for everybody footing his bills. And also, 
I, uh, Saddam's starting to get another supplier during this time. Well, he's getting Guess gassed who? up the whole time. So the United States of America. Yeah. So everybody's uh, gassing him up. Well, uh, so uh, we'll go into a little bit in the next episode, but Saddam lost the support of the Soviets. Um, so now um, the revolutionary Iran is the United States like sworn enemy outside the Soviet Union right now Ooh-wee. who are still hiring is still holding hostages. So and uh, so I, uh, Saddam Hussein's like, I'll be your boy. And he became a huckleberry. And that's nice. uh, they had that's what we'll pick up uh, next really week. Weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is like I said in the beginning, it's. It's a, a proxy war, but not because they also had their own reasons to go to war. Yeah. But that war wouldn't have happened without them being used as proxies. It's it's all sorts of weird Cold War inception dip- diplomacy. I'm just get, uh, like when you say that they use big armor formations as yeah. bling. This is how I imagine their tanks looking. Yeah. All I, iced I, up. Yeah. I posted a picture of the chromed out Abrams on our Twitter page that sits on our mixer. That's, that's <laughs> the, if, if all the road wheels had spinners. <laughs> uh, so that is this week's episode. You can join us next week. We'll recover Iran Iraq part two, um, where we will quickly learn the Iraqi military isn't as good as he thinks it is. Um, so thank you for joining us this week. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at lions underscore by you can follow me for all your stupid shit posts at jcast 99. And you can follow me on uh, Nick cast M one. Yep. And uh, thank you everybody for donating to the podcast. Um, our podcast will always be free, but if you think what we do is worth a dollar or however money, however much money you can throw it to us and get cool perks. And if stuff. you feel we should investigate North Dakota, let us know. Yeah, I don't yeah, that can be our next crowdfunding venture. Although um, I would not want to go to North Dakota, so don't yeah. send us. I'm going to send Nick to North Dakota. Um, don't. But also, uh, for the Patreon guys who did get the stickers and stuff that I sent out, uh, send me a picture. I haven't seen one yet. I kind of can't tell you Yeah. Uh, so, see you next time. Later. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible. And as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download his title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.